Hey, this is Ryan Joe, and you are listening to Quarantined Comics. In this episode, we're going to review Upgrade Soul by Ezra Clayton Daniels, and it is probably one of our favorite graphic novels that we have reviewed so far. And part of the pleasure of this particular uh, story is coming into it cold and being constantly surprised by the twists and turns. In this podcast, we are definitely going to be revealing some spoilers. In fact, a whole lot of spoilers. So we suggest you maybe come back after you've read it. Thanks for listening. smart guy and you've accomplished a lot, but do you ever wonder what more you could have accomplished if you were ever able to max out your abilities? Like, would you would you even be the same person? Are any of us the same person, Ryan, as we endure the day-to-day meanderings that have become our mundane, repetitive lives? But, if only any of <laughs> I pre-wrote this, as you can tell. <laughs> but, if only any of us could hope to imagine an escape from this den of mediocrity, to even imagine being our better selves. So I'm just going to take that as a yes. And that's a good thing because that's a central conceit in Ezra Clayton Daniels' remarkable sci-fi graphic novel, Upgrade Soul, about two accomplished individuals, a husband and wife duo named Holly and M- Molly and Hank. <laughs> Holly and Mank. <laughs> Holly and Mank. <laughs> now that sounds like that would be a sitcom. Anyway, Hank and Molly, Molly and Hank, who in the twilight of their years volunteer for an experiment that would turn them into the optimal versions of themselves free of any genetic ailments or neuroses. In theory, of course. What could go wrong? Well, they are instead cloned. And the clones, though physically deformed, each represent Hank's and Molly's physical and intellectual peaks. And it's through this conceit that Daniel spins an amazing, devastating, and horrifying story about how our experiences and the way we respond to them define who we are as people. I'm Robin Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And you're listening to Quarantine Comics, a podcast featuring two guys who are very, very, very far from their optimum selves. But we try our best. So, Robin, I had not read this before. You had not read this before. So we both went in pretty cold. Not knowing what it was about. So what did you expect initially, and how did you feel after your first read of it? This book was awesome. <laughs> like, I I couldn't put it down. I I mean, I had to because I had to go to bed, but I couldn't wait to pick it back up every time. And I, I read it in three sittings. And, you know, when we, when we set out for season two, we said we were going to pick more diverse creators. And... Sometimes what you expect from diverse creators is they're going to tell a story about diversity, and that's okay, right? The Vietnamese, refugee, the world where only black people have superpowers, and so I was like, okay, sweet. I don't know what I'm getting into, and that's not what this book was about. This was just good, weird shit, man. The conceit is not that novel, believe it or not. It's It's been done a few different ways but never where it goes this horribly wrong. And it just kind of like twists the knife over and over again. I I don't know if you're having an effect on me, Ryan, but I really love this weird shit. What about you? What do no, you I, think? 
Yeah, I, I loved it too. Uh, I was surprised how much I loved it. This is probably one of my favorite books that that we've read so far uh, in doing this podcast. And, you know, I, I was trying to think, why did this book have such an effect on me? Because we've read horror books before. But I think the, the central thing that really always stays true is the love that Hank and Molly have for each other and the way that they are always kind of clinging to that relationship, their love for each other, despite all the horrible shit that happens. You have this anchor. Yeah, you're right. I, I was actually questioning myself. I was like, why am I into this weird shit? But yeah, it was the couple that never quit. That, that was at the, at the core of this book. It was the through line. Actually, it's not just the, the, the love that they have for each other. It's a love their extended family has for them and that they have for their extended family. The way Hank's brother, when he thinks something's wrong, he's like, I'm going to go bust them out. You know, so there is this really, really tight family unit that gets incredibly disrupted by the shit that, that goes down in the, in the laboratory. And, you know, in even the weirder stuff that happens within the lab, the weirder relationships that are revealed as the story progresses, even those few very, very true. And I'm thinking about Lena in particular, who yeah. is, I forgot the head of the lab's name, Kenneth or something like that. Yeah, but she's the reason this entire procedure exists. Right. She has a deformity. She, I guess she had a parasitic twin. And so she basically has like half of a face and a crippled leg. She can't speak properly. And her brother is doing this experiment because if his sister could exist without that parasitic twin, without the the physical handicaps, who could she be? You know, and in the meantime, but you, you also have this thing with the sister and, and how she starts to find love. And so all of the, the core motivations of the characters are very primal and very effective in anchoring the emotional core of the book. The other thing about Hank and Molly is when the book opens, they're just kind of two cute old people you know mm. they've led a good life but they want to continue it and as you start to discover molly is like genius level right a genius level scientist hank is a you know published author owner of this massive ip franchise like these are they're pretty extraordinary individuals and if anything that kind of made the story more disturbing to me was they had it all they effectively mm. had it all. And you learned that over the course of the book, they had it all and they wanted more. And it's kind of like Icarus flying too close to the sun. You didn't need to take any more from life. You you took way too much. And there, there's consequences of that kind of, fuck it, we're going to pay in to this weird genetic thing. And mutant clone babies are going to come out the <laughs> other side. And... And even them, the I can't. They changed their names to like Henry and Mar. Mar, Mar I want to say Margarita, but I don't. Yeah, but they they the those character versions of them. You know, it's kind of like Slade Wilson from the Teen Titans. They've activated a hundred percent of their memories. They can remember everything they've ever seen. They almost have access to too much. Yeah, and that's it's almost like you don't want to remember everything you want the impressions that everything left on you right like i don't remember every memory of my life i don't know if i would want to be encumbered with that that feels terrible maybe you and again they, they do kind of evolve to these super beings not with superpowers but they're just smarter they're stronger they're weird looking but they because basically spoiler alert what happens is the the, the scientific process is to clone these people 
and to, I guess, migrate their conscious over to them. But what winds up right. happening is in the growing of the clone, it's basically they're just like functioning fetuses. <laughs> like that's what they look like. No, I mean that's they they're that's not a, quite that's, that's literally what that's literally what they are. I mean, in fact, when when the clone version of Hank, Henry, you know, he actually kind of says, "Hey, I'd I'd like to have functioning genitals. I'm basically just a fetus." So that's definitely like a point of of contention. They stop kind of physically evolving as fetuses, though they are do have the kind of super strength and super intellect. Yeah, because they're human sized or a little shorter, but like, but yeah, they're intellect is off the charts they've accessed a hundred percent of their brain power they can remember everything from their 80 year old lives and that allows um, molly or the clone version of molly whose name manuela i just it's, it's yeah. manuela yeah just it allowed it manuela to remember everything she'd ever tried scientifically and she's able to connect the dots between everything all the missed connections and i don't know i mean it's it's upsetting to me because mm. They had a great life. Like, I mean, that opening scene with Molly playing with her niece. Oh, that was a great scene. That's a great scene to open with, isn't it? I mean, because it just shows that relationship between her and her, is it her niece? Her, like, her... Niece. Yeah, it's her her niece. And it's a very mundane way to open, but it also kind of very quietly says a lot about how she relates to this little girl and how the little girl relates to her and how close they are. You know, where she's kind of, where the little girl's playing the scientist and she calls her her aunt assistant, and you know they kind of do this experiment together with her pet rabbit. And the one the one other interesting twist, other than oh my god, not only did the I mean at first you just think the procedure went horribly wrong and they look like monsters. Yeah. You later find out that the monsters are clones. The originals still exist, and there's a psychic connection between the originals and the newly evolved versions. And they can't stand to be apart. They physically feel pain when they are apart from each other. And I mean, it does bring up this interesting conundrum. I don't know what the point of the book is. Is it supposed to be a commentary on cloning and science and stem cell research and all these things? So I, I read an interview with Ezra Clayton Daniels, and he basically said the idea came from when he went to when he went to grad school, and he had kind of grown up in small town America, where he was sort of cock of the walk when it came to being an artist. And he goes to grad school, and suddenly he's exposed to all of these people who he thinks are so much more talented than he is. And uh, he finds that very, very intimidating. So that was the genesis of Upgrade Soul. So what if you you kind of wake up and everything, all of your talents, the things that you, you, you know, help define you as a person, you meet somebody who has all of those talents except like 10 times better. You know, how do you react to that? You know, I actually kind of want to talk about the relationship between the clones and the originals because this is really interesting. And one thing I think that, Ezra Clayton Daniels did really well, is that even though, you know, when we see the clones of Molly and Hank, Manuela and and Henry, even though they're different people, it's also very clear that they have like a lot of the same personality traits. For instance, you know, Hank, the original, is very, he's he kind of reminds me of like these tech CEOs, you know, kind of very <laughs> relentlessly optimistic, kind of a go-getter, even when things go bad. Yeah, you know, we're going to, it'll be fine. I mean, even his approach to this, man, what, when, when they're first starting this experiment, Holly's like, Molly's like, yeah, I'm not sure. She's kind of, she's kind of nervous. She has a lot of trepidation versus Hank is like, oh, this is going to be great. Oh, this is going to be fine. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, you know? 
And his clone, Henry, kind of has that same aggressive optimism that actually kind of drives him eventually going rogue in a way. And I thought that was like a really, you know, just kind of a brilliant feat of characterization from Daniels because he makes these characters different, but still very recognizable as coming from, as kind of getting the base of their personality from, from their hosts or from the originals. And I thought that was really, really, really cool. And also that, you know, that helped with the whole theme of like, okay, so if your abilities, Roman, were magnified by a hundred, you know, you retain all of the experiences you had, but you just have a completely different way of processing them. You know, how would that change you as a, as a human being? And we see it very vividly with, with the Hank Henry dynamic. I think my favorite part is they had to make their own ears. <laughs> But that was that was only the Hank clone, Henry. The Molly clone, Manuela, thought that was completely ridiculous. She was like, I don't know. She, I think she says he just makes his ridiculous ears. That's also the interesting thing, right? Henry and and Molly, or Hank and Molly, the originals, love each other. They have this like incredibly tight bond. They're always kind of like trying to be together. Versus Hank and Manuela. Manuela decides she does not love Hank, you know, so the optimal versions of themselves do not do not really love each other. But so this is where I, I want to ar- argue the, the conceit, yeah. right? The the best versions of yourselves are not the fully realized versions because marriage and partnership, maybe there's a commentary in here, marriage and partnership takes work. And you need to forget stuff and you need to move past stuff and you need to like need to see through things. And Hank and Molly, this couple, they've been through stuff together. They've they've probably fought, they've forgiven, they've forgotten, they've gotten used to each other's tendencies. But when you meet Henry and Manuela, the the cloned versions of them that remember everything, they very quickly move past each other. And that wasn't yeah. what the couple wanted. They were like, shit, we got another hundred years together, maybe. Maybe we can try to have kids. Look at all the things we're gonna do together. And the minute they become these new people. They want nothing to do with each other. You know, they're, yeah, only, in, they're I, only in it together because they're still stuck at that kind of camp or that facility. But at the first moment's notice, they get away from each other very quickly. Yeah, I really love that. I mean, Hank still has this. I keep getting them mixed up. Henry still has Henry the clone still has his bond with Manuela the clone. When he first is able to move about, he's very excited to see her. He's, you know, he seems, you know, very optimistic about their future together. But Manuela just drops his bomb saying, you know, I don't, I don't love you. I, you know, I'm sorry. You know, and she never explains why. I don't think she needs to explain it. I just thought that was just such an interesting detail where in kind of reaching that optimal version of herself, she's essentially moved past Hank and any, any affection and love she's, she might have had for him. Actually, there is a line where she, I think she's talking to, she might be talking to Henry and she says, you know, when I think of the man I fell in love with all those years ago, it's you, it's, it's who you are telling to, she's speaking to the original, the original Hank, not the clone Henry. So, you know, there's something to that. It's like, it's like she fell in love with this man with all, you know, despite all of his flaws, all of his, you know, all of his weaknesses, all of that combined with all of the things that that Hank does well is kind of what made him the man for her. And this optimal version of him, you know, is not, is not it. And, you know, part of it is also like the Henry, I mean, Hank, the original is, he's, he's sort of a pompous guy. 
And that's magnified once, you know, once you see the clone Henry, who has, you know, a hundred times Hank's intellect, a hundred times Hank's strength. And almost to the point where he's actually psychopathic because, you know, at first you think that he's in love with Lena, but then it's revealed that he's actually just manipulating her. He has no love for her. She's just a vehicle for him to escape. And that makes him so much more chilling because the optimal version of Hank is essentially a psychopath. The optimal version of Hank has no feelings or no real sense of compassion or humanity. Yeah. Would you... Would you undergo some sort of procedure like this? I'd basically be a diminished version of myself and I'd be giving all of my, you know, all of my strength to a cloned version of me who would get to enjoy all of the benefits. That sounds like a horrible fate. (laughs) But I don't know. Even if you could optimize, you know, my intelligence, my strength, I would be, I think, afraid to do that because I think one thing the book does emphasize is that your limitations as a human is also very instrumental to who you are as a person. And I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with who I am. So I don't think, you know, not having any of those neuroses, you know what it is like sometimes those neuroses and those anxieties, I mean, they, they might seem really, really limiting, but they can be important in the same way that physical pain is important because it warns you, you know, maybe you're not supposed to be doing this. Maybe you should kind of step away for a little bit. Um, It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay and it's necessary to be imperfect. You know, without your sense of fear, you'd probably be doing all sorts of weird shit that you probably shouldn't be doing. Without your sense of, you know, social anxiety, you might, you might basically, maybe you'd be one of those people who just has no filter. You'd be like this Donald Trump version who just kind of, he just charges forward in life without even thinking of others. The characters, the clone versions kind of look a little Trumpian. They kind of do, don't they? But maybe Trump looks like a fetus. I didn't even think about that until you mentioned that. But yeah, they, 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 I don't think that's intentional. That's not, clearly not intentional, but. But, but I think to bring it back to the book, I think this, I wouldn't. And as tempting as it sounds, again, not knowing with the, the risks involved. But even if there were the promise of this immortality, it's like what makes life worth living is the mortality of it. Knowing there's a finite limit. You you don't have limitless potential. You've got to make the best of what you've got. And I kept coming back to this quote from one of the worst Star Trek movies, Star Trek V. Which and one is that one? Is that the one involving the whales? No, that's four. That one's pretty good. Five. five is they go to the center of the universe to find God. And this, basically, there's kind of like this cult and they want to take all your pain and suffering away. And Kirk, says i don't want my pain taken away i need my pain and it's kind of like i want my imperfections you can't have those taken away your imperfections your forgetfulness the things you you know you selectively have remembered we we always should strive to be better to be clear to make the most of what we've got but it just it feels like when you try to execute a cheat code like they did you know not just bad things are going to happen but just your best self is not going to come forward. There's just a risk. And and the the analogy, the other analogy I can make is I think about the people I got along with or I get along with today, and they never were the ones who had it all, who had it made in their formative years, those junior high and those high school years, right? Because you need to be humbled by bad experiences. You need to feel pain. You need to feel imperfection. And this book shows, again, 
when you've got everything in front of you, never mind the deformed fetus body, but they don't even seem to really care about that. Yeah. But when you have everything, you become a bit of a dick. And yeah. Well, actually, let's, you know, so page 203, that's the beginning of chapter eight. Hank and his clone Henry are talking about the character that Henry owns, Slain, which is a fictional allegory for racial prejudice that Hank's father created. So the, the clone Henry has all of the same memories as Hank, all of the same memories of racial prejudice. But his reaction to it is like, eh, you know, you got to get over it. You got to move on. He's coming from the same place, really kind of the same memories, better memories of all things that they've been exposed to. Yet his his reaction to it is one of, of complete apathy. It was a really interesting conversation where the clone Henry is basically telling Hank, hey, you know, there's no thematic cohesion with this slain character. The racial allegory is shallow and boring. And, you know, the the original Hank just kind of reacts very, very strongly and negatively to that. I actually think that was a really interesting interrogation as well. Because we, as much as we said this book isn't about diversity, it does kind of address... It pokes a couple of those points in. And, you know, I, through the whole book, I wondered, okay, this whole slain thing makes for interesting backstory, but man, there's just a lot of detail to it. And it wasn't until that moment where mm. it's almost like the ego and the id have this conversation about it to with themselves, right? He has a com- He's literally having a conversation with himself about it that now it made sense why well, you had to set up all of that backstory of Slane for that moment. It's a good payoff. It's a great exhibition of how different the clone Henry is compared to Hank in terms of like just perceive, you know, the perception of, of all of these past injustices. I'm sure this character is probably a little bit dated, but then you also see Hank's kind of emotional attachment to that character and how that character sort of relates to his life and his father's life and how how Henry the clone just doesn't care about it at all or is just so distant from it despite having for all intents and purposes undergone the same memories the same experiences but again it's i it's kind of what you choose to forget what you choose to accept and Henry has chosen to he's literally litigating everything in the yeah. moment he's like i remember everything about that moment and you're wrong. <laughs> it's kind of kind of what he's well, telling himself. And it's also, and this is kind of later on, when there's this confrontation, a much stronger confrontation between Henry and Hank, and Henry the clone kind of remembers this past so much more clearly than Hank does. And he says, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm really more Hank than you are. And that was just such a really kind of cutting and nasty moment Dick for mood. Henry. Yeah. But also, Dick yeah, mood. you also kind of wonder, you know, in, in a way, if, I mean, Ruman, if somebody else has all of your memories and experiences, but remembers them so much more sharply than you do, I mean, would that make I, them more gonna, you than you? I'm, I'm going to say no, because what makes you, you is the entire evolution it's not just the destination or every milestone it's the things you've chosen to remember the things you've chosen to forget that's what makes you you the the experiences Hmm. of your life you learned a lesson right or wrong from a moment from a scene from an instance and whatever you learned out of that moment right or wrong is what shaped you into being you as a person ryan or raman right like okay and so literally to have near perfect recall about everything makes you a fucking wikipedia entry or yeah, oh, you'd be a database right 
Yeah. I mean, you see this a little bit in Star Trek The Next Generation with data, right? Like emotion, emotion, personality, character is a form of selective memory, in my opinion. And again, remembering everything, you're just a database. And sure, you can process every little moment, but I don't think you're supposed to. I wanted to ask you about Manuela because she's a very different person. A very you mean Margarita, form. I think, is what you meant to call her. In case you forgot, Roman, Margarita is the fun clone. Manuela is the depressed clone. <laughs> no, to our readers, there's only one clone, Manuela, clone of Molly. But she, so, so her reaction is a lot different. She's actually very, very sweet and a lot sadder. And actually, her moment at the end is like, it's like, it's like a sacrifice because I think she realizes that she realizes fact, she's not supposed to be there. Yeah, you know, she cannot live if if the clones are apart from their hosts for, or from the originals for too long, they, they they both experience intense physical pain. And it's not clear, like, if one dies, what happens to the other? And I think Manuela figured out that if she dies, Molly will eventually be fine. But if Molly dies, that's basically the end of her. And so Manuela basically sacrifices herself. So, so I mean, a beautiful it's just... moment, a beautiful moment before she makes the choice where, you know, she remembers her niece but she sits in for the phone call briefly, you know, and that's, Oh, that was just that a great was the moment. moment that she chose. Yeah. Well, okay. So that, that moment was fantastic because like the last shot of her, it's actually very intimate and it's also very sad because she says, Oh, you know, tell me about the, the dream that you had. And it's just a very touching moment. Manuela recalls the, this beautiful relationship. She had this beautiful closeness she had to her niece, but knows that she will never actually be able to have it herself because she is, right. A clone. In fact, I think that also probably drives her ultimate decision. You know, the memories of all of these human attachments that she holds very, very dear, but not being able to really claim them as hers, not being able to ever go back to that life. It just was heartbreaking to see how that played out. And also as a point of contrast to to the Hank clone, Henry, who basically becomes a psychopath, doesn't care about (laughs) anybody. Versus the clone Manuela, who who obviously cares very very much and feels very very deeply about these things, you know, it's just it's just such an interesting kind of one eighty between those two clones in terms of the direction that they take. And I thought yeah. that was very very smart because like when you first read this, you kind of assume that it's just going to be about clones going rogue, and you know there certainly is an element of that, but it doesn't come until the end, and it doesn't come the way that you expect, and it doesn't happen to both of them. Yeah, there's, and, and it's not like the violent clones escape scene. I mean, there's the one no, scene with the yeah. car, which is almost like comedically silly how it plays Yeah, out. and then, you know, speaking of clones, there's also, in a way, the Lena clone, right? Because you're talking about her having that sort of parasitic twin that was removed and is the cause for her deformities and her physical uh, handicaps. And the way Lena reveals her interior emotional depths, she kind of sketches the face of her sister as she imagines it onto a piece of paper and, and has this kind of conversation with her. And Which so was in kind a way, of freaky. Kind of, kind of the freakiest thing w- of the entire book. One of the details I really loved is that when she has her sister talk, so her sister is basically a sketched face on a piece of computer paper that she tapes to the wall. And whenever Lena is embodying her sister, she puts her shadow over the, the face, the, the, the face drawn on the paper. So it kind of creates the outline of a head. And then when, that, and when Lena's talking, she kind of takes the shadow away. It's an interesting parallel between what Molly and Hank are going through with their clones. I mean, I, the, the, th- the thing I struggled with the most in this book, and again, I, I saw it as a necessary plot construct, but was Lena, 
Lena's psychosis, Henry's manipulation of Lena. It, it Lena felt more like a plot device than anything. Yeah. To kind of keep things moving to create tension. She but, did. She, she was just the one person I, I connected with the least. Initially, I quite liked her from the fact that she is essentially the mother of the clones because they came from her eggs to, you know, just who she is as a person and what she wants in life. But I felt she was more of a device towards the end, like you. And I think that's because a lot of what happened to her felt sort of rushed and forced from, you know, the whole subplot of her, of the reveal that it was her eggs that made the clone. I mean, it's this shocking moment, but nothing comes of it. After that reveal, it's sort of like, it's forgotten. There's no real fallout from that. And so it's sort of like, ah, he kind of wasted that really epic dramatic moment. Another example is when she kills uh, Hank's brother when he tries to rescue Accidentally. Her. She does it on purpose. She does it because she thinks he's Hank as a case of mistaken right, right, identity. But she, but she does, yeah, she does, exactly. Yeah, yeah accidentally because she doesn't mean to. She's not, he's not the one she was trying to kill. She, she, meant to, she meant to kill, and so her motivation was out of romance. Right, but there's but no yeah. fallout. But again, no fallout from that. No sense of guilt. No sense of it almost, again, it feels, it's, a, it's interesting when it happens, but afterwards you realize it was just sort of, as you mentioned, a plot device. And then the third thing is at the end when she's taken over the Institute and she's like a very competent sort of executive. And that's completely different from the personality that we were introduced to before where she's clearly an intelligent girl. She's 19 years old. But at the same time, she's also very uncertain and unsure. And suddenly at the end, she's almost sort of like a very, very professional and kind of cold corporate executive. It didn't gel with the individual that we met in the beginning. So I felt like I, 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 I definitely feel your point where she, she didn't initially to me feel like a plot device, but in the end she did. And I think it was that conglomeration of stuff that just kind of happens to her. That's interesting, but you realize it's all for the sake of moving the plot forward. So while we're moving through kind of the cast of characters, tell me about how you felt about the mad scientists, the whole crew, all three of them. I didn't have the emotional reaction that I had. I, I, you know, they, they actually visually were very interesting because there's the mad scientist and then there's the Dr. Teal, the elder scientist who was his mentor who communicates through a video Television. screen. Yeah, and she, it looks like, you know, that enemy Zola, Arnim Zola from, yeah. from the Avengers. She kind of looks like Arnim Zola. I, I, I actually like visually, I kind of like the scientists. The, the, they, they were the To me, they were the comic relief of the book. They were, they kind of were. They, they, You know what? I mean, I think visually it was important that they're very visually distinct and kind of unusual looking because a lot of the times they're kind of there just to deliver exposition. Like they talk about wavelengths and, and how it all fits together and, you know, there are pages of it. And, and I felt like often at times sort of like, man, you don't need to explain it that much. You, I'm not going to remember all of this stuff. But it was kind of redeemed, I think, just by how unusual the three of them are visually as well as their assistant, the, the blonde woman who has the moon boots. The the only other thing that kind of left an impact on me in this was the art. And mm. I, I knew it was written and drawn by the same guy, but I just got these, I personally just kind of got these echoes of Frank quietly. <laughs> I was yeah, like, wow, I did. Like, yeah. Here's what a so a weird soap opera by Frank quietly would feel like. And again, that was just one of those things. I just drank it in. Again, it's a consistent style, a consistent pacing. And a lot of that is because it's the same writer and artist. And yeah, it's just beautifully rendered, just weird enough. 
just real and relatable enough. You know, like the compositions alone of, you know, sitting on the phone in the kitchen on the phone, these kind of quiet conversations and these quiet moments and these repeated beats just work so well. I think that's why he reminded, he reminded me of Frank Quietly too. And I think you just hit on why. Frank Quietly, you know, as good as he is with those stunning action shots, he also is really, really good at just kind of showing characters like getting a beer where he'll hold the, the, the camera very still and it'll just show the character kind of moving, doing these almost kind of mundane movements. You know, opening a can of beer, going to the refrigerator to get something. And, you know, Ezra Clayton Daniel kind of does the same thing. There's a lot of shots where it's not a lot of this happening. It's just like basically a few talking heads and they're kind of doing some small things, stirring something or whatever, typing on a computer as they're having this conversation. I think because the artwork is so clean, gives a lot of weight to every movement that each character does. Usually the compositions are so staid, it creates a, a magnifying effect. And I feel like Frank quietly often does that too with very quiet, sort of subtle movements. Oh, you know, I also wanted to bring up something that was kind of interesting. It's more about the form of the book because you were talking about the composition. But so originally Upgrade Soul was actually an app. This is back in like 2011, 2012 when the first couple of issues came out and I, the app is not available anymore you can't it's just not being supported because it costs money to support an app but you can go on youtube and just see how the app played out and actually yeah, i mean what what was it you had to buy the app and that just he would just push issues to you or you bet i don't know it, i don't know about the monetization aspect of it but it was a little bit more dynamic there would be lighting effects there would be sound effects it felt a little bit more experimental and frankly from what i saw of it on youtube it felt a little unnecessary i got more out of reading it as a basic traditional comic book rather than you know having things kind of pop out at me which and i think i think probably is because this story is actually as much as they say it's a horror story it's really actually just kind of a, a story about the relationship and the love between these two individuals. And that might have been undermined if you emphasize the horror aspects too much with sound and actively zooming into certain panels and zooming out. I actually feel yeah, like... Yeah, it's kind a- of... I mean, I hate to be a snob about the medium, but the medium works best when it's a printed page and you're flipping mm-hmm. through it. And again, I'm not I'm not one to be as snobby to say, man, you must only read the issues. Reading the graphic novels is the wrong way to go. And to your point about the app, I just kind of like flipped around on YouTube while we were talking about it. It's like, it felt like they were just putting illustrated pages into it. Yeah, app. yeah, yeah. You know what it is? And like, Raman, let's be snobs about this. It's, it's that, you know, you kind of have, it's not animation. It's not quite a comic. It's kind of this half-assed in-between that I've never quite, you know, I've, I've seen other comics try it. I mean, there's an extent to which I think sometimes you get that on Comixology, you know, because you can kind of zoom into certain panels, which is a feature of, of Comixology that I never use. It just feels like... Because you, you want to see, because the artist drew the page. The artist wasn't drawing the panels, you know? You know what? It's, well, you know what it is also? It's the, the fact that the page as, as a whole also has... There's a graphic design element to seeing how all of the panels fit into the page as a whole. And if you start zooming in and you start doing sound effects and light effects... You're actually taking away from all of that. You you kind of take away from all of that compositional work that the artist was doing, not just on a panel by panel level, but on a page by page level. It's hard to get lost in it. Ultimately, though, I mean, I upgrade. So, I mean, I know we kind of picked a little nit, nitpicked a little bit, but I, I feel like this book is like definitely one of my favorites. I mean, it just an unexpected delight. Really, yeah. didn't know what I what to expect. Didn't know where it was going half the time. And I just kind of like sat back 
and it was just a treat reading the whole book. I want the the comic experience I had, and thank God I didn't read it in the app, right? But the experience I had reading this book, it was a page turner. It was something I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know what to expect at any given moment. I want more comics like this. And when I say like this, I don't mean this story, this plot. I just mean this quality of a reading experience was just, yeah. If, if all, com- I mean, again, to me, this was the pinnacle of what good comics can be when you, you break out of the mediums and the, the assumptive nature of superheroes or anything. Yeah. Well, Robin, that reminds me, what are we reading next week? Next week, get ready for some PTSD. We are going full-on superhero, unexpected, terrible things with Tom King's Mr. Miracle. There's a boom tube waiting for you, Ryan. Well, as long as my optimized clone isn't at the end of it, I am totally okay with that. (laughs) 